to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 2, as we follow along with today's lesson. The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, And they said, it is not reasonable that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. Now, here they recognized that in the ministry, there are certain priorities that must be maintained. And in the ministry, the top priority is the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. That's what God has called the minister to do. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And so that was the top priority of the apostles, was waiting upon God in prayer and studying the Word of God in order that they might teach the people God's Word. Now, pressure has arisen. There are problems that have developed in the physical aspects of the church's ministry, and that is the administering of the welfare program. So there was probably a pressure to get the apostles to take a more active role in this doling out of the church's welfare program, but they said, no, it's not right. It isn't reasonable that we should do this. And so here they are guarding against what has in subsequent years become a real problem in the church. So often a pastor is expected to be an errand boy, uh, to be a taxi, to uh, do all kinds of... You'd be amazed what people have called upon us to do. Uh, And it isn't right, they said, for us to neglect the Word of God to take care of all of these things other issues. It isn't that these other issues are not important and should not be a function of the church. But those who have been called to minister the word, it is important that they give their time to the ministry of the word. Really, I feel that it isn't right for the minister to give a lot of time to personal counseling because that takes away from your time of study in the Word. 
uh, there was a time when I got caught up with that. The, the people were demanding to come and see me, and, and I was trying to accommodate everybody that wanted to see me. You don't want to remove yourself uh, too much. And uh, I found that I would be sitting there listening to the person's problems and so many times they want to make sure that you understand the problem. They tell you ten different ways when you got it the first time. And I knew that that night I had to be teaching and I really had not completed my study time and preparation. And the whole while I would be thinking, oh, please, you know, wind it up <laughs> find an end to the story so we can pray and, and I can go home and, and get the studying done that I need to do for tonight and time was robbed from the whole congregation because I wasn't fully prepared when I came into the pulpit because of the time that had been taken in the personal counseling, which I do not consider myself a gifted counselor anyhow. And many people have told me that. <laughs> they said, we did what you told us to do and everything blew up and it's horrible now. And, and, and that doesn't really encourage you in personal counseling. So... I seek to avoid it like a plague. <laughs> but they understood their real place of ministry was the word of God. That's what God had called them to. And so they maintain that. It isn't reasonable for us to leave the word of God that we might go and uh, dole out the welfare program of the church. So the solution Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The three requirements. Well, I guess four men, but that's not a necessary requirement. <laughs> who are of good reputation who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it is interesting to me that this they considered a requirement for this job that doesn't seem to be a spiritual job. It seems to be more mundane, just when the people come determining their need and, and giving the churches uh, goods to them. And yet, it was a requirement that they be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom you may appoint over this business. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So this ministry will be handled, it will be taken care of by the seven men who are of good reputation, filled with the Holy Spirit, and men of wisdom. And we will maintain 
that which God has called us to do, prayer and the ministry of the word. So the saying pleased the whole multitude. Fair enough. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanus, and uh, Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now, I have noticed uh, both here and in the uh, further in, in the in the book of Acts uh, that uh, the 13th chapter they didn't lay hands on them and pray, but they prayed and then laid hands on them. No big deal. I mean, it's just something that I noted, uh, and not trying to teach anything by that, but just a notation. Uh, the Bible says lay hands on no man suddenly. So uh, they uh, would pray and then it would seem lay their hands on them. That isn't quite the way we do it, but I'm sure that that's only methodology and meaningless. Now, it is interesting that all seven of these men have Greek names. There isn't a Hebrew name among them. So here were the, the Hellenist cultured Jews complaining that they felt their widows were not getting a fair shake. And so what do they do? The seven men they appoint are all with Hellenist names or Greek names. And so they probably were all of them from this Hellenistic Jewish culture. And the word of God, as a result, good decision, increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, even uh, those that were in the priesthood. Many of them be believed, and, and God was moving mightily in the church. Things were going well. Now, these seven men that were chosen for the task that we would perhaps consider a menial task, especially if we had ambitions for ministry or something greater, we'd think, well, you know, got me here waiting on tables, you know, and I feel called of God to be an evangelist, you know, and Billy Graham's going to be passing from the scene, and surely they're going to need someone to take his place, you know, and uh, why should I be, you know, serving here at the tables? But I have discovered that we start wherever God opens the opportunity and we are faithful there. And as the Lord said, you have been faithful over a few things. Now I will make you ruler over many. And that does seem to be sort of a principle by which the Lord operates. People very often come to me 
and declare their desire to get into the ministry. They feel that God is calling them into the ministry. What shall I do? And I usually send them over to the Christian ed department to volunteer to teach a Sunday school class. If God has called you to the ministry, then start ministering. And there is an open door in in the Christian ed department to teach in a Sunday school class. And in reality, I think that that is one of the greatest training grounds that you will ever find. Learning to communicate God's truth in an understandable way so that even a child will be interested and understand the truths of God. If you can communicate God's truths to a third grader, you'll be able to communicate it to anybody. (laughs) And if you can develop your skills in the communicating of God's truths to children, you'll find that you'll have the ability to communicate God's truth to adults. But that's a great training ground because children are so forgiving. (laughs) But you start by doing. I've always said the greatest way to learn is to teach. Because in teaching, it requires so much research and study. You have to absorb 10 times or more the amount of material that you're going to give out. I read commentaries until I am so confused I don't know which one is right. because they all seem to have their own ideas and many of them disagree with each other. But you have to absorb so much more than what you give out that it's great pressure to study because you know you've got to have something worthwhile to say when you stand up there, and thus it takes a lot of preparation. Here is now showcased for us in the next two chapters, two of the men who were selected to wait tables. These men had good reputations, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were filled with wisdom. And they began the ministry waiting tables. But faithful there, God soon raised them up to other areas of ministry. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. The most important thing is that you are what you are 
by the will of God. Trying to be something other than what God has willed you to be can be a great lesson in frustration. It's important that I am what I am by the will of God, that I know that I am what I am by the will of God, that I have an assurance of my calling and of my election in the body. But Paul clearly teaches that not all are apostles, not all are prophets, not all are evangelists, not all have the gifts of healing and all, so that we are what we are by God's will. And it is faithful to be what God has called you to be. That's what's important. I hear people refer to, say, those that stand up and say, well, God has called me to go to Borneo uh, to minister to uh, the people there on that island. And, and we think, oh, my, you know, such primitive people and uh, what a wonderful thing, what a noble thing. And I've heard it referred to often as the highest calling or the ministry as the highest calling. There is no highest calling. Whatever God has called you to be and whatever God has called you to do is the highest calling for you. That's the highest calling. Whatever God has called you to be. And if it's waiting tables, great. Do it as unto the Lord. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all as unto the Lord. I am what I am for the Lord because of his calling upon my heart and life. But it's important that I am faithful there. I started out teaching Sunday school. <laughs> when I was in high school, I was teaching the young married couples class of all things. Of course, I knew more about raising kids and marriage at that time than I do now. <laughs> it's amazing how much you know about raising kids when you don't have any. <laughs> and it's amazing how much you admit you don't know anything about it once you've had a few. <laughs> but be faithful where God has placed you. And promotion comes not from the east or the west, but promotion comes from the Lord. But we need to learn to be happy and content wherever God has put us. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am in to therewith be content. If God has called me to be a janitor, in the house of the Lord. I'm content as a janitor. It's interesting how many of our janitors are now pastoring churches around the country. And I mean, these fellows were so faithful in their work here as janitors. 
I mean, they were diligent. They would sing. They would have the tapes and listening to the word of God as they would be vacuuming the floors. And, and God has blessed them. And, and now many of them are pastoring churches. It's just being faithful wherever God has put you is what is important. And then God will open up other doors of opportunity if that is his will. Two men chosen to wait tables are now focused on as we go into chapter 7 and chapter 8 and we'll see the ministry of two of these seven. Interesting, isn't it, that of the apostles... We know nothing of their further ministry. Here are two men, not even apostles, but yet a chapter is given to each to tell of their expanded ministry after their faithfulness in the place where God had put them. So Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. It is interesting that this also was the case with Philip, who we will look at in chapter 8. When he went to Samaria, many believed and were baptized when they saw the miracles that he did. So <clears throat> these men, waiting tables and yet so gifted by God, men of faith who went out and one who stirred the Jews and the other who stirred a whole community of people, the Samaritans, towards the gospel. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and of Asia, and they were disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Filled with the Holy Spirit, no doubt word of wisdom being exercised. And, and these fellows, the trained, skilled college men, were not able to Resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So they then <coughs> suburned men, hired these men to testify against him, who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes came upon him and they caught him and they brought him to the council. And they set up the false witnesses which said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say <coughs> that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. 
And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. There he was, angel faced Stephen, <laughs> sitting there and all of these accusations being made against him, false accusations, accusing him of saying things that he really did not say taking the things that he had said out of context. There was probably partial truths in some of the accusations, but they were taken out of context, and thus they are bringing him before the religious council to stand trial, these false witnesses being brought in. So, the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Men and brethren, <coughs> fathers, <coughs> hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country from your family. Come into a land that I will show you. And so he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he removed him to the land wherein you now dwell. What Stephen is going to do is rehearsed to them their history. Going back to the beginning of the nation with Abraham. The call of God upon Abraham to leave the area of Babylon, the area of the Chaldees, and to journey to a land that God would show him that later God would give to his descendants and starting with the, the beginning of the nation with Abraham, for God chose Abraham that through him would the Messiah come. And so God had to build the nation. And so he gave to him no inheritance in it. No, not so much as a place to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him when as yet he had no child. Here's the promise of God. This land is yours. When Abraham came into the land, God said, look to the north, south, east, to west, all as far as you can see, I have given it to you and to your descendants after you. And the thing was, Abraham didn't have any children at this point. His wife Sarah was barren. So then God spoke to him through a vision. And in this vision, God informed Abraham that his seed would sojourn in a strange land and they would bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. 
And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, God said, will I judge. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. So God is declaring to Abraham now, through this vision, that your descendants are going to be 400 years in a strange land. The people will make servants out of them, but then I will visit and bring them forth. This was the prophecy concerning the children of Israel going into Egypt. When Joseph was sold by his brothers to, and he's going to deal with this in a moment. He was sold by his brothers to slave traders going to Egypt where he was then sold as a slave. And Yet God was with Joseph and Joseph ultimately, because of the Lord's hand upon him, became second in command in Egypt. And when Joseph's brothers came back again and Joseph finally revealed himself the second time and They bowed before him, fulfilling Joseph's earlier dream of the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Then he said, bring dad down to Egypt because this famine is going to continue for a while. So Jacob came down to Egypt with his family. One place it says 70 souls, here it says 75. The 75 were the uh, children of Joseph who were already in the land, so there's no really discrepancy. The 70 who came down from uh, the land of uh, uh, Canaan uh, into Egypt with Jacob and then the family of Joseph that was already there. And so in, in Stephen here refers to the 75. So after Joseph died, there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, a succession of Pharaohs. The Jews had become a threat, and so there was that uh, edict to kill the baby boys. Now, as he is recounting the history, you must know that the Jews were very proud of their heritage. They revered their fathers. They were always talking about our fathers, holding them in the highest respect. And Stephen is going to irritate them because he's going to point out that their fathers weren't saints as they had sought to make them. It's interesting concerning, they say, the Irish. You never speak evil of the dead. And they always seek to saint them once they die. Uh, They can live like the devil, but when they're dead, uh, you only think of the saintly aspects of them. And, And thus was sort of the case with Israel. When they would think of their fathers, they would always think in saintly terms. And, uh, yet Stephen is going to show that their fathers were not saintly men at all. They missed God's will over and over again. 
But in Stephen's defense, the brilliancy of his argument does not go unnoticed, I am sure. Jesus had said to his disciples, you're going to be brought before the magistrates and before kings. And don't take any forethought of what you're going to say. For in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give to you the words you are to say. Very obvious that Stephen is being gifted now by the Holy Spirit in the arguments that he presents to the council. Basically, what he's going to show as he brings the story up to Joseph, he's going to show that the brothers of Joseph, the great patriarchs, the fathers of the nation of Israel that they looked to with such esteem, that the brothers of Joseph, when he first revealed to them his dreams concerning the sheaves, their sheaves bowing down to his, and then the sun and the moon and the stars, 11 stars bowing down to him, uh, that it's going to make his brothers so jealous and so angry that they are determined to kill him. And the one brother more or less interceded, Reuben, throw him in the pit, let him starve to death with the intention that after the other brothers left, he'd come back and get him out. But then as he is there in the pit, they see this, the, the traders heading towards Egypt and they see an opportunity to make a few bucks off of their brother. And so they sold Joseph for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because they rejected the thought and the idea that he would rule over them. Now, the next time they see Joseph... He is a ruler. They don't recognize him at first. But then the second time, he reveals himself. Herein is a beautiful type of Jesus. Now, earlier, Peter, when he was talking to this same council, said to them that you have put to death Jesus Christ, but God raised him from the dead. He is the stone which was set of not of you builders, but he's become the chief cornerstone. The first time that Jesus came, he was not recognized by his brothers, the Jews. They put him to death. But the second time, they will recognize him as Lord. When he comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus is the Lord. So he's showing that they missed the first time around, but the second time around, they had to acknowledge that he is the Lord. And when Joseph was putting the pressure on his brothers, they all bowed down to him, and then he remembered his dream. And I'm sure he was sort of chuckling, you know. (laughs) But brilliant. And he's going to follow through this thought until he's going to just lay it on them directly about how their fathers rejected all of the prophets that God sent to them. But how that they are worse than their fathers because they have rejected the just one of whom all the prophets spoke. So as you go through and you study ahead in the seventh chapter, study carefully this brilliant defense by Stephen. We'll be looking at it more fully next Sunday night as we will finish the seventh chapter next Sunday night, this brilliant defense of Stephen. As you study it, I want you to realize that sitting there listening to all of this was a young man whose name was Saul. He's hearing all of this. Now, the first response of Saul was extremely negative, as is often the case of a person who's under conviction. A lot of times when a person gets under conviction, they become absolutely intolerable. You can't be around them. They're under conviction and they respond in a very negative way against everything because God is speaking to them and they're fighting. As Jesus later said, it's been hard for you to kick against the goads. But here's where the Spirit of God is beginning his work in Saul's heart, though his first response is negative. Yet later, when the Lord apprehends him, the whole thing flashes clear in his mind, and we find him born again running. Let's turn now in our Bibles to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts as we continue our journey through the Bible, presently in the New Testament. In the sixth chapter, we find that problems had arisen in the early church over the fact that those Jews that were following the Grecian culture, known as Hellenist, felt that the Hellenist widows were not given equal treatment when the church was giving out its welfare program. They thought that the Hebrew widows or the widows that were following the Hebrew culture were getting a better deal. They came to the apostles with their complaint and it was decided that uh, they would appoint seven men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, 
to take charge of the distribution of the welfare so that they might, the apostles, continually give themselves to the word of God and to prayer. Now, there was the seven who were chosen, and then Luke goes on to sort of showcase for us two of these men. They were not apostles. They were men chosen for the task of uh, administering the church's welfare program. And yet, when they were faithful in that area where God placed them, then God used them in greater ways. You know, there are a lot of people that are just sitting around waiting for God to open the great doors of opportunity for them. And they spend their whole life waiting for God to open these great doors. They uh, see themselves as another Billy Graham or, uh, you know, the, in some great work for God, and, and their whole life is spent waiting for God to open that door. Well, that isn't God's method. God opens up the smaller opportunities to us first allows us to prove our faithfulness in that which God has entrusted to us. And as he sees fit, then he will give us greater opportunities. It's important that I get started, that I begin to serve the Lord. And it isn't always at the top rung of the ladder. It's usually at the bottom rung of the ladder. But promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. Promotion comes from the Lord. And if you're just faithful and prove yourself faithful in that place where God has placed you, then God will give you greater opportunities if that be his purpose. If it isn't, you're very satisfied and happy where you are. You know, it's almost a oxymoron to be ambitious for a place in the kingdom of God. It's just being faithful where God has put me. And if you know you're in the will of God, you're happy, you're content, and just as content ministering to 25 people, 50 people, as you would be to 25,000 or 50,000 people. If you're convinced this is where God wants me, this is where God has called me, then there is a contentment and a satisfaction. I will do my best where I am. I'll do my best for God right here. So often, as we then are diligent in the little things, then God gives us greater opportunities. We do remember the parable that Jesus gave of the talents and how a couple of the fellows went out and increased the talents, doubled them, brought them back to the Lord. And they were commended. The fellow who just buried the talent was waiting, you know, for I don't know what but didn't do anything with what God had entrusted to him. Ultimately, 
that was taken away and given to the one who had increased the talents. And God said, to him that hath shall be given that he might hath more. But him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he has. So God expects you to be faithful and to serve in whatever place or capacity he has opened the doors for you. And as I said, when we are faithful in the little things, then the Lord will make us a ruler over the bigger things. But faithfulness is important. And so in chapters 7, we have the ministry of Stephen, one of the seven. In chapter 8, we'll look at the ministry of Philip, another one of the seven, and how God broadened their ministries from serving tables uh, to uh, doing marvelous exploits for God. So the story of Stephen begins actually in verse 8 of chapter 6, where he, full of faith and power, God was using him in a gift of miracles, and it created a controversy with certain of the different religious groups, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And so they hired men to give false witness against him that they might bring their charges to the religious council. And so Stephen was brought before the council and these false witnesses gave their stories and the high priest said, are these things so? That's all Stephen needed, an open door. And he began to give witness. Jesus said to his disciples, they're going to bring you before the kings, they're going to bring you before the magistrates, and don't take forethought what you will say in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you the words, and it will turn to you as an opportunity to testify. So we find that this is modeled for us through the book of Acts. Every time they stood before the courts, every time they stood before the kings or judges or whatever, they just used that as an opportunity to share the gospel. It turned as a testimony. And as we move through Acts, we'll find how Paul, uh, every time he had to face the courts, uh, the kings and all, he used that opportunity to testify for Jesus. So uh, he began to rehearse for them their history very patiently, starting with Abraham, the call of God to leave uh, Babylon and to journey to a country that God would show him. And uh, how that after his father died, he left uh, the Haran and he began to journey and uh, God finally brought him into the land and said, this is the land I'm going to give to you and to your seed after you. And uh, he promised him that when he didn't have any child. 
But uh, then Abraham had a interesting encounter with God. God took Abraham out on a dark desert night sky and said, Abraham, look up. See the stars up there. Even as they cannot be numbered. Interesting thing that God should say that way back in Genesis because in reality, uh, they, they, the ancients thought that the stars could be numbered. Uh, they sat out at night and counted the stars. Now, that would be a difficult project indeed. And no wonder they came up with different estimates. There were some who said there were 6,128 stars. And others that said, no, there were 6,218. And, and different counts were made, but the general average was around 6,000 stars that are visible with the naked eye. Now, they didn't have telescopes. And so for the Lord to say, even as the stars are innumerable, that was contrary to the science of that day. And no doubt the scientist had a great kind of joking with, you know, the Bible says the stars are innumerable. We know there's only 6,218, you know. But God said, as the stars are innumerable, so shall thy seed be. And so Abraham questioned the Lord, how can I know this? You know, I, I don't have any child. I'm, in fact, I've, you know, Eliezer, he's the one that's going to get all of my inheritance. And he's just a servant born in my house, but I don't have any child. And so the Lord promised Abraham a son. And then the Lord said, take a three-year-old heifer, a she-goat, and uh, a ram, a turtle dove, and a uh, pigeon, and lay it out before me. So he cut the heifer and the ram and uh, the uh, she-goat in half, but he left the bird's hole. He laid them out on the ground. And the vultures came, and so he spent the afternoon beating the vultures away. And at night, as he fell asleep, there came a fear, a great fear of the darkness. And the Lord spoke to Abraham, and he there told Abraham that his descendants were going to go into a strange land where they would be mistreated. But after 400 years, the Lord would bring them out with great sustenance. And uh, so the 400 years in Egypt was predicted there in Genesis chapter 15. So Stephen is rehearsing these parts of their history for them. And he talks about God giving to them the covenant of circumcision and how that Abraham finally begat Isaac, circumcised him the eighth day. Isaac begat Jacob and the 12 patriarchs. 
We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Acts in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Joseph and his brothers, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 6 through 7 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks to you tonight for the opportunities to serve you. Lord, even in places that don't seem to be important. We know, Lord, that you have chosen those less comely parts of the body to bestow the more abundant comeliness. And some of these ministries, Lord, that seem to be so insignificant, they don't really receive much praise or recognition. And yet, Lord, when we are faithful, just to be what you've called us to be and just to do what you have set before us, we realize, Lord, that you will open the door for greater opportunities. So, Lord, give to us that contentment and the diligence in serving you in the little things, whatever it is that you've given us the opportunity to do. May we be faithful. May we be diligent. In Jesus' name, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Sometimes it's difficult to celebrate the holidays like Christmas or New Year's Eve because of a recent death in the family or a sudden tragedy that's happened. And it's in times like this that we want to be used by God to bring encouragement, hope, and most of all, love to our family and friends who are going through a hardship. That's why I'd like to tell you about a book by Chuck Smith called When the Storm Hits. I'm amazed when I read this book that it's able to encourage and strengthen a person and persuade them to look to Jesus and not at their problem. It encourages us to be patient, not to lose hope, and when the storm hits, to get anchored on Jesus, the rock, and don't let go. 
To order a copy of Chuck Smith's book, When the Storm Hits, please call the word for today at 800-272-9673. Or you can visit us online to read a preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.